Today we're going to uh, get back into the book of Titus. So if you will, uh, you had the Titus 1, 5 through 9. Uh, that's going to be one of the passages that we'll be looking at uh, today. But another one is uh, 1 Timothy 3, and it's going to be 1 through 7. So if you will like keep a finger in that area because we'll be going back and forth. Because today we're going to talk, be talking about uh, elders and the qualifications for an elder because this is where we are in Titus. Uh, I found a comparison of the two scriptures that Paul gave us in those two passages. Uh, and it's from the ESV. So I made... 25 copies, so there should be one for each household, okay? So Judah and Peter, if you would come up and would you hand these out one to each household? If there's just one person in a household, that person gets one, okay? If we got enough. So if y'all would, if you'll go down there and just try to catch everybody. Uh, and this will be helpful not only today, but it should be helpful for you in in the future because this is something that uh, will come up from time to time and you'll need to know it and be uh, prepared on how to address it. Uh, especially when it comes to elders and I'll actually put a uh, put a little uh, application at the end where you'll, you'll see the uh, need for this. Okay. Uh, I titled this Finding Men of Character, this, this sermon. Uh, uh, in, our book, in our study of the book of Titus, uh, so far we've finished the introduction, and now we're moving on to the purpose. The purpose of the letter is found in verse uh, 5, uh, first part of the verse in uh, chapter 1 in Titus. Uh, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you might set in order what remains. Uh, and so before I dive into uh, the scripture itself, uh, just a reminder uh, of what we've learned so far, uh, and it'll help us to know the how and the why Paul and Titus came to, to minister on the island of Crete. Sometime between Paul's first and second uh, Roman imprisonment, Paul and Titus visited Crete. Uh, they'd stopped on, on Crete on the way to, uh, he had probably stopped on, in Crete on his uh, journey to his first imprisonment and probably had gotten a glimpse of what n- the needs are of some of the churches there on Crete. And uh, they, they were pretty needy. And so knowing that Crete was uh, uh, so knowing that Crete was in the shape it was in as far as the churches go, uh, he, he put a return visit to the island for follow-up ministry on his list of things to do. Uh, and knowing that Titus was uh, capable to address the problems of the church of Crete, since Titus had been with Paul since his conversion, either physically being discipled personally or on assignment from Paul, uh, uh, and Titus had been well trained in, in in, as a disciple, just like uh, 
other well-known trainees like, of Paul's, like Timothy, and both of them could be trusted by Paul to fulfill his command uh, from 2 Timothy 2.2. 2. And the things which you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. He knew he could use those men to pass on what he taught to them. And so uh, Titus had proven himself uh, uh, once before when he was successfully ministered to the uh, church in Corinth. So Titus was the right man to go with Paul to Crete and, uh, and also the right man to leave in Crete to set things in order. Uh, Paul knew that he had, had other places to go and other works that, that were pressing for him to do. So he brought uh, this competent trainee with him and to just leave him there to finish the work that needed to be done in the churches on Crete. And it was a big task. Uh, if you notice in verse 5, he says he was to set in order things in order and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Uh, a historian of that day, of that period, gave Crete the moniker of an island of a hundred cities. And so if there was a church in every city, I can't imagine what kind of uh, job that was. It's a monumental task to put to appoint elders in every city. I know as the elders here, when we were uh, bringing me in as an elder, or the elders here when they were bringing me in as an elder, it, there was a lot to it to go through the process of figuring out what they needed to do and, and uh, how, to, how to go about finding the right people and that kind of thing. And we're doing the deacons now as a church, and so it's a process too. So uh, for one man to go to 100 cities, that's a big deal. And, uh, and if he's going to do this, he's better be clear with regards of what he is, is to be looking for in these men that he's going to be appointing as elders. He can't pick just someone uh, because that's the best businessman that's there in that church and he knows how to uh, administer, administrate things. Or uh, he can't be the guy that's got the most charismatic personality in that church because all the people want to gather around him and, and are, are uh, wanting to, to do what he's doing. No, that's not what the uh, God's standards are, and Paul knew that. Paul had taught uh, Timothy and Titus what the qualities are that they needed to look for in men that they're going to be elders. And we found those in the two passages I told you to, to mark, First Timothy 3, 3, 1 through 7, and Titus 1, 5 through 9. These are lists of qualities which you have there with you that are found and one that, need, that is to be an elder. They're not negotiable either. Uh, they can't uh, kind of partially fill the list and be okay. Uh, when you look at both these lists, there's 16 qualities, and they're repeated uh, all through the list. Uh, they're not maybe in the same order, but, and they may be stated differently, but... Uh, and there may be one in one section and not in the other, but as you see your list there, they, they pretty much fit together, and you can find them coinciding. And so uh, uh, these qualities 
can't just be picked and choose from. The candidate uh, for an elder can't have just like 10 out of 16 and be acceptable. Uh, he must be characterized as, as a person that has 16 out of the 16 that are, that are listed. And, uh, and we know that no man is perfect. We're not talking about perfection at this. But an elder is a man that walks in a way that exemplifies these 16 qualities. Uh, he must be a man that strives to live by a set of principles that guide his life in a way that they cause these qualities to be apparent. Uh, and you may remember uh, a few messages back when we were talking uh, uh, here in Titus. We talked about uh, Paul, and uh, it was from a... a thing I saw from John MacArthur, what he said about Paul and what made him to be an effective uh, uh, in the Lord as he was. And he, he put it this way. He was a man who functioned completely on principle. And what do I mean? What do we mean by principle? Principle is the truth that doesn't change. There are some unchangeable, non-shifting, unvarying foundational truths that he must be that he must build his life on. He is not an individual who's moved by his own whim or his own emotion or his own passion or the latest trend. Principles are not subjective, they're objective. They're not internal, but they're external. You hear talk about values and it sounds good on the surface. There's moral values, family values, personal values. Judeo-Christian values, you know, and so on. But generally, values carry the connotation that I value some things and I don't value other things. And whatever I feel is valuable, that's what I'm going to commit myself to. <clears throat> they can be somewhat subjective and somewhat internal. Principles are not subjective. They're objective and they're external. They're not outside the individual they are fixed they are outside the individual they're fixed Paul never functioned on whim he never functioned on his own passion or his own emotion his whole life and ministry was built around a core of principles absolutes that never change divine principles are just that that's what made him effective and that's what made him useful and that's what made him fruitful in his service to God. These principles were the core of his life. Now, if we operate on principles at the core of our lives, we'll always be, have a fixed starting point. You don't grope around trying to figure out what you're going to do or how you're going to do it. Living by principle affects four things in your life. One is confidence. When you have a principle that you function, when you function on principle, you function with confidence. There's a security in, in you to do what you know is built on something which is fixed. You know it's true. You're clear about what is true. You're committed to what is true. And so you act confidently in response to the truth. Confident people remain confident no matter what happens. It doesn't matter to them whether the result is good, bad, or indifferent. Whether people love or hate them, 
where there is an affirmation or a hostility, he does what he does with complete confidence because he's operating off a principle that God has placed, planted in his heart. He has assurance to act, and there's no hesitation, equivocation. He moves rapidly with confidence. And the second thing that comes out of principle life is purpose. You know what you're all about. You're not only ready to act, but you know what to do. You know how to act. The direction is laid out for you, and you know exactly what is expected of you, so you know what to do, and you get get busy and do it. Third thing that comes out of a uh, principle life is wisdom. When you know uh, a principle and and you act on a principle, you can you discern and you have judgment and you know how things are to be done. You know enough to do something and you know what to do. You know how to do it because you have principles that lay out all of all of that. And then the fourth thing that comes out of principle is power. When you operate on divine principle, you have power. You move with strength. You have energy to act because you're acting in accordance with divine principle. You have divine power, divine wisdom, divine discernment, and divine direction. The motivation of your heart is clear, and you have divine confidence. Paul was a man that operated on, uh, from principle, and he knew that his son in the faith, Titus, was a man that operated from principle. He also knew that he could trust Titus to find men in every city. Uh, where the elders were needed in the churches that had qualities that showed that they were men of principle. And that's why Paul tells Titus in verse 5, for this reason I left you in Crete that you might set in order what remains. Let's stop there and just look at that part. This is the overarching task uh, of what they as, as Paul and Titus as a team didn't finish. Titus was to finish how it uh, was to finish this. And how was Titus to do that? It's captured in this little phrase, set in order. It comes from the Greek word, and that's, it may not say it in your version, but in the New, New American Standard Version, that's uh, what the phrase is. And it comes from this word, um, epidiorthuo. It's a compound word. Uh, epi is a preposition relating to the distribution or direction, like towards something. Dia is through, so it's you're moving towards this through, and in what you're doing it through is orthos. Orthos is to write or erect or level or direct something to make it straight or upright. And so the word epi, the ortho, is Set in order, that's uh, is, uh, from, from the concordance is, is what, what the Greek says it is. And it's used in Greek medical terms. Uh, you can remember it this way. You've got break a bone, it's crooked, you make it straight. It, the ortho part. And so uh, he had him going to make things straight and, and make them right. And uh, the word... Uh, the word actually comes even if you go back further to the root word of uh, epi, the, the orthuo, uh, comes from oros, which means to rise or rear. 
And it's like as in a mountain, uh, as in a mountain lifting itself up above a plain. And Titus' job was to set and order and appoint elders by going to every church in all the cities in Crete, finding the men that were head and shoulders above the rest of the men in in their walk with the Lord, uh, and then helped to straighten them out in what was not straight. So you see how the word really fits well with what he was going to do. Titus had been trained uh, all his Christian life uh, for stuff like such as this, and he was prepared to meet the task. The task begins with appointing elders in every city, as we said, finding men that have the character that produces qualities that are named in the two passages we talked about, Titus and, and 1 Timothy. So let's talk about the required qualifications, and, uh, and we're going to be mainly in, in Titus, so you know, that's where you need to be. In verse 6, first part of the verse, namely, any man... Uh, if any man is above reproach, and that's the New American Standard. In the King James Version, it says blameless, which both fit. This is a general qualification that's overarching quality that covers all the rest of the specific qualities that will follow. Above reproach or blameless is someone that is is unaccused or irreproachable. and there's no one uh, other than Jesus who was perfect and never made a mistake. But this person uh, is a person that if someone makes an accusation, you can just say it doesn't stick. Because, uh, and why does it not stick? Well, first of all, uh, they're careful not to, the person is, not, is going to be careful not to make mistakes. So that it'd be hard to, to stick one on them if, if they hadn't made it. But the other uh, reason is if they do make a mistake, they slip up or, or do something uh, and they know they shouldn't have, they're quick to correct their error. They repent and rectify whatever they've done wrong. And so they're people that do right. They are people that do right. And when something goes wrong, they make it right. And so that, there's a life principle in itself right there, right? Uh, uh, it's a person that's set in their heart that they're going to do right or make it right if, if it's wrong and, and it's in whatever they're doing. So, And then the, the second uh, quality is a husband of one wife. And literally in the Greek, you can, you can say it, a one-woman man. Uh, this phrase is, and qualification has been uh, wrongly interpreted from early, early church history and in, even to, to present. Uh, uh, Pope Gregory the First, I think there's been several Pope Gregories, but Gregory the First in uh, 540 to 600, uh, and this, I got this from Brian Borgman, so I didn't I didn't look this up myself. <laughs> give him some credit here. Uh, he, he interpreted uh, this to be uh, when, it, when it says uh, a one woman man to be the wife here is to be the church. Uh, so an elder was to be married to the church. Well, we know that's not uh, what the meaning of this is. Uh, it's not to be married to the church. And uh, some other uh, mistaken things is uh, not to be married to only one woman, one woman, and so 
uh, abstaining from polygamy. Uh, we know that would, that doesn't fit anything biblical because polygamy would put you in a world of hurt in a whole bunch of ways, especially sin, uh, because you're who you're adulterizing if you have more than one wife. So there's there's the problem with that. And another problem with it was during that day in the Greek and Hebrew cultures, which these are the people that, that uh, he, was, he was going to be talking to and uh, uh, sharing this with, polygamy was very uncommon. It was just almost unheard of. It looked down on in those cultures. And so uh, there's no reason for it to be needed to, to be addressed. So, so that's not the interpretation that should, should be there. And it's not a man married to one woman and then having side affairs. You know, I'm going to stay married to this girl but or this lady, but you know, I'm going to go out and do my own thing too. No, that's not it either. Uh, it's, uh, it's not having a questionable relationship with a woman anywhere. And you can put it from the spectrum of flirtatious to adulterous. He's going to be a husband of one wife, a one-man woman. It's a man who is faithful to the one he's married to. Uh, this man is committed to the one that he married for as long as they live. He's already put that principle in his heart that that's going to be what happens. When I'm married, it's for life. Uh, and, uh, and he's also going to love them as Christ loved the church. Uh, and to the extent that Christ loved the church, what did Christ do? Christ died for the church. So this is a man that's, that's going to love his wife in a way that he's going to die to himself so he can meet her needs and then the needs uh, help her to uh, grow in Christ and become more holy. Uh, so what should a... a one woman uh, man relationship look like uh, it should look so much like uh, the way Christ loved the church that that man's going to be an example to the rest of the church to show them what what that looks like and then help them to come along and learn that and apply that to their lives but uh does it mean that the uh, elder has to be married? Well, no, it doesn't. Uh, and uh, so what about single men? Can they be qualified? Uh, are they ineligible? No. Uh, the husband of one wife, the way the grammar states it, uh, it, it, makes it, it implies that, it, that if the candidate is married, that's the way they should be walking in their life because it's an example. Uh, and scripture backs this up with, with the fact that uh, leaders in the church are brought up, uh, are, are stepped in front of everybody else, uh, and they weren't married. Paul wasn't married. Timothy wasn't married. They were leaders in the church. And Jesus wasn't married, so, you know, he was the, the ultimate leader of the church. So being married does, is not necessary for being a leader. But if you are uh, married, then by all means, uh, uh, it, you should be uh, a one-woman man. 
Uh, and what about special situations? So are people that are remarried or divorced, uh, are they eligible? Uh, these situations must be uh, looked at and see if they fit the biblical parameters of 1 Corinthians 7, which we spent some time in that, and I think we have a fair understanding of, of those uh, things that, that are met there. And then there's other passages about marriage that they had to fit into, and then it's a possible that some of the situations will work out, but they had to go under uh, much consideration because of the complexity of multiple relationships and then how that's going to affect them, the church. And so there's uh, that, that kind of throws a monkey wrench into something. And uh, what about a, a, a person that is a widower? Well, 1 Corinthians 7 is clear that the person is free once they're, uh, uh, their wife has passed away. And so uh, that could actually be Paul's situation. Uh, so that's not a problem. But the bottom line here for a candidate, uh, if a candidate is married, he must be committed to be the husband, the best husband he can be to his wife. If you go uh, into a marriage with the principle that you are committed to be a one-woman man, then you're going to be pleasing to God, an example to the church, to enter the world, and you're uh, going to be fully qualified in this uh, qualification to be an elder. The next qualification is uh, on into verse 6, uh, and this is uh, an interesting one. Uh, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. And I'm going to add uh, to that the first part of verse 7. For an overseer must be above reproach as God's steward. Uh, and the parallel passage to that is in First uh, Timothy 3. It says, uh, and first starting 4 and 5, he must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own house, how will he be able to take care of God's church? Those are two passages that say the same thing, just worded differently. Uh, These verses are about the candidate's ability to manage people and relationships, especially within their home. Uh, possibly uh, the most, your family relationships are possibly the most uh, difficult uh, relationships uh, that you will encounter. So they, that, if, you, if you can do that, then maybe you can handle some of the things going on in churches. Uh, and so... You have, it's when you're dealing with the ones that you're closest to and have the strongest emotion to, you have to really set some things aside in order to do well in, in marshalling uh, uh, what's going on there. Uh, 
And there's some uh, some that take the, uh, and I'm going to bring out one point here. There's some that take the verse in Titus 1.6 here to say that you have to have children that believe. And it does say that in, uh, in Titus. And specifically says, uh, one uh, husband of one wife having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. Uh, and uh, some people say that uh, you have to have children who believe, and they take that to mean that they have children who are saved. Uh, and it's and the reason they say that is because the word here for believe is pistos. Um, and it can mean, mean believe or believing or believer as, it, as is taken by them. from, And that's what's in the in New American Standard Version. But it also can mean, and this is just within uh, the word itself, trustworthy, faith, uh, trustful, or faithful. And King James Version says faithful. So, because Paul taught Timothy and Titus and the church the qualifications of an elder uh, through those, these two passages and these two different letters, it makes sense for him to declare uh, the same statement in both, both of them and not say one and one and one and the other. And it's hard to make the, the first Timothy uh, passage say believers so it kind of nullifies the believer thing and since the whole uh, passage is not about other people it's about the elder himself it makes sense to me that he's he's talking about how he handles the situation among the people with, within his family and so uh, I, I find it uh Important to understand that it's not uh, about the, the elder being able to lead his children to the Lord, and it has to be that way because, of course, they need to be able to lead their children to the Lord, but there are things that happen uh, that... Uh, who, who's the author and finisher of your faith? Christ, right? It's little God. And so if the onus is on the elder to do that, why is that a uh, something that's not uh, uh, put on every, every father and every family? Uh, we're all supposed to be leading our children to the Lord, but ultimately, who, who saves them? God. And so that is a heavy burden to put on somebody. Plus, uh, it just doesn't make make sense within the context of both both pa- passages. So, uh, it's more about the management skills in the home uh, uh, and the principle of training their children to be obedient. You can't you can make them obedient, but you can't make them have faith. And so. Uh, that, that uh, is what the elder should be doing is managing their household well so that it'll be obedient and it, it won't be bring shame to the church when 
they have a bunch of crazy kids running around and they say, well, that's the pastor, one of the pastors over there and look at how crazy his kids are. I think I've heard that before. Uh, and so we need to find somebody that can manage their household well and, and keep it at least at bay from being uh, something that would uh, bring shame to the church, to Christ, and especially to themselves. And next, there's two sets of qualifications uh, that are uh, talking about the elders, things that they are not and then things that they are. And uh, the things that they are, they are not is the first set is self-willed. Self-willed or arrogant, uh, and then we're going to go through these pretty fast. Uh, so self-willed or arrogant is going to be my way or the highway. That doesn't need to be somebody that's in leadership. Uh, uh, if they're self-willed, then by definition, they're not spirit-filled. We want men that are spirit-filled and then doing the will of God. They're following God's will. The next one is they're not quick-tempered. The Greek literally means soon angered. Uh, Somebody with a short fuse. Uh, And again, if you're you're somebody that has a short fuse and and you're uh, soon angered, it's a good sign you're not spirit-filled. And not addicted to wine. Uh, And... Literally, then, in the Greek, that's just lingering over wine. Uh, and, and what does that do? That makes you drunk, right? And if you're drunk, what are you? You're not spirit-filled again because uh, don't, Ephesians 5, 18 says, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with spirit. The next one is not pugnation. Not pugnacious. Everybody knows the meaning of that, so I don't have to go into it, right? Now, pugnacious, that's an old word. Uh, it means not a striker, somebody that doesn't uh, get into fist fights. And actually, the best thing that we, we could understand is they're not a bully. Uh, and again, that kind of goes back to it's my way or the highway, and they're taking it to a next level. So that's not spirit field. And not fond of sword gain. And I like the uh, uh, King James Version. It says, not given to filthy lucre. Oh, this like that way, way you say it. It sounds bad. And it is. It's, they don't, you can't serve two masters. You're either, you're either going to love the money and not the Lord, or you're going to love the Lord and the money doesn't make any difference. And as elders here... We don't know what anybody gives. That, that shows you how much we, we love the money. And we're not in this for the money. Or If we were in it for the money, we'd be going somewhere else. So you can understand that. And we don't want to be into that. Uh, the only way I know anybody, what anybody makes is when I look at my check, when I turn it in. <laughs> or I, what, not what I make, but what I give. So we're not, we're not into the money thing. And uh, that... Uh, an elder doesn't need to be that because they're going to be worshiping money and more dependent on that than they are the Lord. Uh, and now we go to the second list with the things that they are. And hospitable is, is the next, next one. And hospitable is just someone that 
that loves opening their life, our hearts, and their homes to others. Uh, and it's not just others in the church, it's strangers even. They have a heart for people to help them grow and help the lost come to the Lord. So they're hospitable. They, want, they, they open up their life so that they can touch other people's lives. They're, uh, and the next one is that they, they're loving what is good. I like the King James Version in this one also because it says lover of good men. And that's a better interpretation uh, from what I understand. It's somebody that loves virtue. Someone who stands for what is right. Uh, you want that kind of person leading the church. And they, it's sensible. Sensible is a sober, discreet, or temperate. Uh, temperate. It's somebody that thinks clearly and through situations well. And that's, that's necessary when you're dealing with the Word of God and people. And then uh, they're also just, which is that they're equitable in character and their actions. Uh, and it's an, another way of saying they're innocent or holy. Devout is, is the next one, which is, means properly right in word or deed. So that's really close to the just one. And then self-control, which is in the King James uh, temperate, but this is, has an emphasis on strong in a thing is the, is the uh, definition for it. So if somebody's mastered is masterful. They're in control of, say, your tongue, your appetite, your temper, any of these things. So see how it all starts fitting together. <clears throat> and then there's uh, a couple of final points about uh, an elder that are important, and they're found in First Timothy. First uh, Timothy three one says, "If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work that he desires to do." An elder must have a desire to do the job. It would be a mistake to try to force somebody to be an elder if they didn't want to do it. Even though they seem like they had all the right boxes checked, and they didn't have the desire to do it. You can't constrain somebody to do this job. They have to want to do it. So God has to put it in their heart. And so you need to find out if that's something going on with them. Uh, even they may be afraid at first to get into it, but if God's put it in their heart, they're going to say yes when the opportunity arises. Uh, and then the other thing is they're not, and it's First Timothy 3, 6, not a new convert, lest he become uh, conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. The reason they don't need to be a new convert because first they hadn't been tested. They're not grounded uh, in their faith. They hadn't had gone through the tough times that proved their faith uh, and and. Uh, And if they step into this and then uh, fall apart, what does that do? That uh, brings reproach on them. It brings reproach on the church, and it it hurts the body. So it's just wise not to bring a new convert into this 
position because they need to grow before they get there. And uh, I know from my experience, I'd grown a lot, but I've had to grow a whole lot more becoming an elder, so we understand that well. Uh, so finally, what's the application here? Well, <clears throat> I gave you the, the paperwork, uh, uh, and you can use it to, to apply in different ways. First, uh, I would challenge you to come to, uh, and this is where I'm going pick on uh, myself and Nathan and, and Adam. Compare these qualifications to your elders, to us. If you see any deficit in us fulfilling these uh, qualifications, bring it to our attention. We want to be the elders that God wants us to be in this church. So if you see anything like that, anything that you think is off in that, Bring it to us. I want to know. And I'm putting them on the spot. They want to know too. And I think they do. Uh, and if we have an occasion to bring up another elder, you have the list there to remind you that they have to meet those qualifications. So it'd be, you're going to be part of the judgment on them along with us. So you need to know what, what's needed and what's necessary for an elder. And then if God has put in your heart and you desire to be in leadership, this is a great list for you to make sure uh, that uh, you meet the standard. Examine yourself first and have others examine you also and uh, so that you'll know that you're ready to step into something like that if, if that's the case. And, uh, and finally... All Christians should aspire to have a walk in the Lord that looks like these qualities. This is just not for the elders. We're just ones that are trying to be examples to you for that. This is for everybody. Just as a reminder, in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 11, it says, and he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors, and some as teachers. That's the elders. For the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body, until we all attain unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son, to a mature man, to the measure and the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. This is where we're all headed as Christians to a, a life that has principles set in it so that character qualities come out that give glory to God and are used to convict the world that they, are, they need help. That's for, the, the, that's for the majority of you here. But if there's some here that have never come to Christ. This sounds like foreign material probably. Let me encourage you. If God is using this word about an elder and how the church should grow up to be that kind of person, and this is something that God has put in your heart saying, yeah, 
That'd be great, but I don't even know how to get there. Let me encourage you. It's always through Christ. It's only through Christ what he did by dying on the cross for you to pay for your sin and then giving you his life through his Holy Spirit so that you can live for him. And if anybody uh, needs to come and talk to either Nathan or Adam and myself about this, let me encourage you to do that. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word about...